Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 and five of the scariest verses in the Bible. Verses that used to terrify me as long as I believe that my name in the book of life was dependent upon my choice. But verses that no longer terrified me for the last 35 years of my life knowing that it was God's choice. Many may wish that the choice was in their hands and in their mind, but I never found any comfort there, and I'm thankful for every one of you that give testimony that's similar, that you find great comfort, comfort, comfort in the sovereignty of God and His electing grace. Isn't that amazing? Those who don't believe it think that there couldn't be any comfort in election or predestination because that puts everything in the Lord's hands. And in the Lord's will. But that's where I find it, and I'm thankful for it. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in to the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Arminians typically believe that since God loved every single human being so much, He sent His Son Jesus to die a substitutionary death to pay for all the sins for every single one of them without exception. If that is the case, then Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15 is quite confusing because these wicked persons that are here assembled before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ, the judge of all flesh, are judged according to their works and cast into the lake of fire. If Jesus Christ had paid for all of their sins, then there would be no charge to lay against them. The Arminian will respond by saying, They're condemned for the sin of unbelief. You should ask the question, did Jesus die for the sin of unbelief? If yes, then all will be saved. If no, then no one will be saved because we were all unbelievers at one time. And if Jesus didn't die for unbelief, you're not going to pay for your unbelief by becoming a believer later in life. I'm sorry, it just gets troublesome to believe a lie. They're judged for their works because their works were not paid for. Their name is not found in the book of life, so they are judged by their works. For every name found in the book of life, their works have no meaning or no value except for them to appreciate the fact that their name is in the book of life, that they were saved over their works by God's grace. The question we must always ask when it comes to the death of Jesus Christ is this threefold question. 
Did Jesus die for A, all the sins of all men? That's a universalist. Everyone goes to heaven. Many Arminians are converting to universalism in the last couple decades. Their theology leads to universalism. If God loved everyone, it's a small step, especially given all the inconsistencies with Scripture, to have all men saved. But we ask the question of Mr. Arminian, did Jesus die for A, all the sins of all men, B, some sins of all men, He didn't die for unbelief, or C, all the sins of some men. I thank God for a man named John Owen, chaplain to Oliver Cromwell, nearly 400 years ago, who wrote a book that I was able to read when I was about 19 years of age, entitled The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. As far as I know, it's the most logical and most thorough refutation of Jesus dying for all men that's ever been put together. And all he does is take our arguments and add a few more and multiply them out a few times and and write in a very logical way of showing that Jesus could not have died for all the sins of all men because it would entirely overthrow the Bible. Because the Bible says too many things about the accomplishments of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there's one thing that we want to defend, there's one thing that we want to glory in, there's one thing we want to promote, it is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That it was never in vain in the least or slightest degree. That it accomplished everything God sent him for. And oh, help us to defend it, Lord. They say that we're teaching a doctrine called limited atonement. But our atonement, or the putting at one again of those separated, is not limited. Every one that Jesus Christ died for is put at one again with God. He atoned for everyone he died for. They are the ones that have limited the atonement of Jesus Christ for his death on the cross did not put God at one with anyone. They have to put God at one with them by their choice to cooperate with grace and accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His death did not do it. If his death had done it, God would not be upset with them and having a great white throne judgment like this where he cast them into hell for their works. If Jesus died for all the sins of all men, why are their names not found in the book of life of the Lamb slain? Since He was slain for them and their sins as much as any other men and their sins. Oh, that covenant book of the Lamb slain. When were our names written in it, my brethren? Before the foundation of the world. I've said it before and you've heard it before, but I want the children to know that I grew up singing a song, there's a new name written down in glory. But there are no new names written down in glory. They were all written down before the foundation of the world. And for that I am thankful. The reason that this passage terrified me is because when I sat in the world's most unusual university and had it preached to me, with my head bowed and every eye closed to raise my hand if I wasn't absolutely sure that if I walked out of that place and was killed by an automobile, I was going to heaven. You know, it made me think that uh, I, I know I've invited the Lord into my heart so many times I can't count them all. Every time I've been afraid in my life, every time I've been convicted, I just kept inviting Him into my heart over and over again because I wanted to get assurance of my salvation. 
And I, I didn't find any assurance in my decision for Jesus. The way I put it to myself, soul, you know you've invited the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart many times since you were three years old. When you did it the first time, was that meaningful enough in the sight of God that He bent over in His throne or had an angel come up and write your name in the book of life? And I knew that my little decision for Jesus was so insufficient, inadequate, unscriptural, without foundation there, as having saving value, I would be quake that I was not found in the book of life and I'm going to be judged according to my works and cast into the lake of fire. But then to hear the gospel that I was chosen in Christ before the world began, that my name was written in the book of life before the world began, that the Lord Jesus Christ was assigned to die for me before the world began, that God began building heaven for me before the world began, that it was all before the world began, that known unto God are all His works from the foundation of the world, that was comforting. Because then, I could read places like Philippians chapter 1 where Paul would say, knowing that your names are written in heaven. You can know your name is written in heaven. Well, I could never know that by decision, especially when that decision is not described in the Bible. Do you know how Paul knew that he was going to heaven? I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. He didn't say anything about a ridiculous decision on the road to Damascus. It was that he had lived in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the righteous Lord, the judge of all, shall give to me and to all of them that love His appearing. It's nothing about a decision. It's about living for Christ. That is the evidence of eternal life. And that is the evidence that Jesus died for you. You can then go to Second Peter chapter 1 and add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and so forth and get those eight graces of the Holy Spirit there that prove your election and you, you can make your calling and election sure. You can go to First Thessalonians chapter 1 where Paul said, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. I wanted to know my election of God and I wanted it to be based on something a whole lot more substantial than me inviting Jesus into my heart when I was three years old and didn't have a foggy idea of anything except that I liked hot dogs with mustard. Lord, thank you for the truth of sovereign grace and a full understanding of the gospel. Every three year, give me any three year old in here right now. I will spend 30 minutes with them at an ice cream parlor after this church assembly and I'll get every single one of them to invite Jesus into their heart with tears streaming down their face. Because on the way to the ice cream parlor, we're going to stop at a funeral home. It works. And so they pull that little cord every single time. But I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord that He wrote my name in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And the gift of eternal life is not me giving myself to Jesus It's God giving me to Jesus, and it's God giving Jesus for me, and it's Jesus giving me eternal life. That's the giving of salvation that's taught in the Bible. And that's just wonderfully different. I'm so thankful for that. Now I can read these verses, and I can think about the fact that I'm making my calling and election sure, and that according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope is evidence that I'm God's elect. And that's comforting. Because I can look at something specific as an adult that's, a, that's ongoing, that's progressive, that's continuing to increase my confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ like the Apostle Paul. It was based on finishing his course. And so we believe that. 
If Jesus died for all the sins of all men, why are their names not found in the book of life of the Lamb slain, since He was slain for them and all their sins, as much as for anyone and their sins? Because the Arminian believes that Jesus died for all the sins of all men. We believe He died for all the sins of some men. We don't believe He died for some of the sins of all men, which Arminians will resort to when you ask them, how can they go to hell when all their sins were paid for, they will say, He didn't die for the sin of unbelief. I'm repeating myself right now. If He didn't die for the sin of unbelief, then all are in heaven. No, they're all in hell. If He didn't die for the sin of unbelief, if He did die for the sin of unbelief, they're all in heaven. Look at Revelation chapter 13. Let's get the full name of the book. It's called the Book of Life. In Revelation chapter 20, where we were reading, it's called the book of life there. It says another book was opened, which is the book of life in verse 12. This is back in 20. I want you at Revelation 13. And it says, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire in verse 15. Revelation 13, 8 says, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The book of life is truly, in its fullest sense, the book of life of the Lamb slain. If the Lamb was slain, the names are in the book of life. And every single one of them had his sins paid for. You don't get your name written in the book of life because this passage, along with 17.8, tells us that the names were written there from the foundation of the world, which agrees entirely with the rest of the Bible that says that God's purpose and grace in salvation was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. We were chosen in Christ before the world began. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. We've already looked at Revelation 21 and verse 8 earlier today where men are cast into hell as sinners. Remember Revelation 21.8. You don't want to forget it. The fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So now we know what the works are from Revelation 20 that gets men into the second death, into the lake of fire. It's like lying. It's not unbelief. It's a lying. There's all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. Well, every one of us have lied. How do any of us get to heaven? By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because our names were written in the book of life of the Lamb slain, and the Lamb was slain to pay for our sin of lying. But He didn't pay for all the sins of lying of all men. He paid for all the sins of lying of some men. And those some men are the ones given to Him by the Father. They are called the sheep in John chapter 10 that you read. They are called His brethren in Hebrews 2.13. They are called His people in Matthew 1.21. They are called His church in Ephesians 5.25. This is what we believe about the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and how successful and glorious it was. If the wicked are cast into hell for their specific sins, did Jesus wash away those sins? They say He washed away all the sins of all men. And John Owen and so many of our fathers between him and us took them to task for that because it's heresy. If Jesus died for all sins of all men, is God guilty of double jeopardy? Do you know what double jeopardy is? Having to be punished twice for the same crime? Because Jesus supposedly was punished for it in their theology. 
And yet sinners have to go to hell and be punished for it again. That's called double jeopardy. That God would be guilty of double jeopardy, and He is the most just lawgiver that's ever been. He'd be the last being to require double jeopardy in the entire universe. Our laws may get mistaken sometimes and charge a man twice for the same crime, but not the God of heaven. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? We can reason in Scripture because our God is fair, righteous, and just. He is perfect in all His ways, and He wouldn't charge those sins twice, once to His Son and once to them, the sinners themselves. Did Jesus die for the sins of men that had been suffering in hell for 4,000 years for their own sins? Think about it. We're asking Mr. Arminian a question. You know, our, our understanding by God's grace, our doctrine of salvation doesn't have a single problem with that question. Cain had been suffering for his sins under the judgment of God for 4,000 years before Jesus went to the cross. Did Jesus die for the sins of Cain? If Jesus died for the sins of Cain, why did He die for the sins of Cain? If Jesus died for the sins of Cain, what good did it do for Cain? And on and on we could go. The questions never end. And you may actually think that I'm being sort of of ridiculous preaching this way. I haven't done this in a long time. You know it's not my standard practice, but I will tell you this, that one of the first ministers I heard that taught me the truth, he made me look gentle. And I'm thankful for him tearing apart the Tower of Babel and showing me the glory of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. It actually accomplished something. It actually accomplished something. It saved every single one that He died for without losing a single one. What a glorious Savior He is. Did God know who would believe on Jesus and be saved? If yes, that God knew who would believe on Jesus and be saved, He knew those that would not. So why would He charge Jesus to die for their sins since they would be punished for those sins in hell anyway? Remember how important it is to ask, Mr. Arminian, is God omniscient? As soon as he says that God is omniscient, he's in deep trouble. Because then God knows too much to die such a foolish death as the Arminians have for their Jesus. You know, there's more than one Jesus in this world. And it's a, if it's, a, it's a different Jesus by understanding. It's a different gospel by understanding. It's a different spirit by understanding. It's taught in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4. And though many of them are... Many... I didn't say all or most, though many of them are truly God's children just misled by false teaching, they are teaching and espousing a different Jesus, a different gospel, and a different spirit. Because it's not the victorious spirit that the Bible talks about. It's not the victorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that the New Testament sets up. And it's not the gospel of the grace of God. It's a different kind of a gospel. It's a gospel that you have to perform a condition in order for you to get to heaven when we believe that Jesus Christ did that as the second Adam and did it fully and perfectly. If Jesus said that He would save all the Father gave Him, do you know where to find that in the Bible? Every one of you should know where to find that. Where did Jesus say I would lose none of them? John 6. Let's turn there so that you can see it. We'll just take a a little while longer. John chapter 6. They love to quote the second half of verse 37. That's a whole other section of questions as to why they corrupt the Bible the way they do. Why is the second half of verse 37 so important to them? Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. See, they want to get you responsible for coming to Jesus. 
And if you'll come to Jesus, he won't cast you out. But do you know what they don't want to tell you? They don't want to tell you the first half of the verse that anyone that comes to Jesus was given to Jesus by God the Father. And furthermore, in verse 44, no man can come except the Father which hath sent me draw him. They think that they can draw him by a good enough movie. Do you know how many times I accepted Jesus after watching A Thief in the Night? You know, all I, I can still remember that electric razor sitting in the sink, still running as the wife comes running in and finds the razor there, the shaver there going in the sink, and her husband's gone because he's been raptured. And then the Antichrist, there's machine guns out in the street. You know what I do when I see something like that? Would you put that on pause for just a moment, please? It'll just take me a second. And then I get saved again. And then at the end, to make good measure, you take your girlfriend's hand and get saved a second time in the same day. A thief in the night. Where's that in the Bible? Where's making some little decision for Jesus in the Bible? They want the second half of verse 37. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out to put upon you the burden of coming to him and that Jesus won't cast you out if you'll come to him. I'm repeating myself because I don't want you to forget what you're learning. The first half of the verse says the ones that come to him are those given to him by the Father. There was a giving long before you went to Christ, and that was God giving you to Jesus Christ. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And then no man can come except the Father which hath sent me draw him. It's in verse 44, and Jesus repeats it in John 6, in verse 65. Because Jesus kept needling this crowd with his hard doctrine, the apostles knew it was hard doctrine and said, Why are you giving such a hard saying? And he said, Didn't I tell you that no man can come to me anyway, except the Father which hath sent me draw him? It doesn't matter. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Oh, isn't isn't the truth wonderful? And we read the whole verse. And we'll read the whole sentence. And we appreciate it all in its context. Thank you, Lord. If Jesus said he would, well, we want to get verse 38. There's two, this is a sweet chapter in the Bible. John 6, 38, they're all sweet. I told you what my favorite chapter was so far this year, Leviticus 25. John 6, 38, for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Verse 39, and this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. You know, they want to worry about coming to Jesus in verse 37, but all that the Father giveth Jesus will come to Jesus. And verse 39 says, All that the Father giveth me, I will not lose a single one of them, but I will raise every single one of them up. And yet they will do anything in their power to get people to come to Jesus. In their idea of coming to Jesus. They don't believe that it's all up to God, it's all up to them. Because after all, God's done all that He can do. Now the rest is up to you. That is not the God we worship here. We have done all that we could do, and now the rest is up to God, and I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. You know, the best we could do are fig leaves and a whole lot less than that if it wasn't for the grace of God. So my question to Mr. Arminian, my question to you, so that we can think through God's Word from John 6.38, if Jesus said He would save all that the Father gave Him, how many did He give Him? This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. How many did God give him? The same number that is saved. The same number that is resurrected in the great day. The same number that is 
standing at the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ as his sheep. That's how many. If Jesus said he came to save all the Father gave him, how many others are saved? No others. You know, Mr. Arminian that might be listening to this might not know that I love him. But if he loves the God of heaven to the degree that he understands him from the same pages of the Bible that, that, I, that we understand him, we do love him. And we want him just to rejoice in a glorious sovereign God and a successful, victorious Savior, Jesus Christ, who paid for all the sins of some people, and those some people are called his people. Because the angel told Joseph, Mary is going, she shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. And we just believe all three shalls in that verse. I do believe that Mary brought forth a baby. I do believe that Joseph named him Jesus. And I do believe our King James translators put it in all capitals, J-E-S-U-S. And he saved his people from their sins. And that is what we believe. And I know this is simple and I know you are somewhat established in it, but don't let me see any doubts on your faces when we come to Romans chapter 10 and we hear something like, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that an interesting verse? They love to grab Romans 10.13, put it on a long stick, blow it up with air. It's cotton candy on a post. And they run around with that cotton candy on a post and they will not use Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Because after all, Romans 10.13 says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. They don't want to deal with Luke 6.46 where Jesus said, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not those things that I command you? Oh, they don't like that one either. They don't like 1 Corinthians 12.3 which says, No man can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Ghost. Do you know what happens when a person says, that they believe Jesus is Lord, the Holy Ghost has already regenerated them and has opened their heart and is moving them to make such an incredible declaration about Jesus of Nazareth. 1 Corinthians 12.3 But they don't want those verses because their cotton candy is too sweet in their mouths. And do you know how much, what happens to cotton candy when you put it in your mouth? When you buy it this big, how big is it when you get done swallowing it? you might as well have asked for a sweet tart. Do you have to be so sarcastic? Did Elijah have to suggest to the prophets of Baal that maybe Baal was on a journey and that if they would yell a little louder, he might come home or that he might be sleeping and that if he would yell a little louder, they might wake him up and he could bring fire down on that altar. If Jesus died to save those that were given to him and he said he would lose none of them, did he die for any that are lost? Any that end up in hell, did Jesus die for them? Utterly impossible. Right. By every reason that you can think of. You say, preacher, it says that in John chapter 6. Does it say it anywhere else in John? You know, I've never really got out of the book of John because of John 3.16. Does it say it anywhere else there? Well, if you'll come over to John chapter 10, which many of you read last evening, it puts it this way. Same terminology, same transaction, same certainty with the death of our shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 26, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. We'll come back to this verse, the Lord willing, at some point in the future. Do you believe on Jesus in order to be one of his sheep? Or do you believe on Jesus because you are one of his sheep? But ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep, 
As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, that is, they come to him, and him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Keep reading with me. John ten twenty nine. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. There's God giving the sheep to the Lord Jesus Christ, who in turn give themselves to Him. But some did not believe on Him because they were not of His sheep, and this was His church. For many are called, but few are chosen. And those that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Because I have other sheep that are not of this fold, them also I must bring. That's our shepherd. Thank you, Lord. Look at John chapter 17 as he prays a couple of hours before his crucifixion. John chapter 17, verse 1, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. And I want to tell you before I hit the second verse, this is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. We are about to read the explanation for the glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. That is what glorifies God. That is what glorifies Jesus Christ. That God gave a certain number to Jesus Christ to redeem by His death on the cross. And He, the Lord Jesus Christ, gives to them eternal life and to no others. And there is not in this verse this statement. As thou hast given Him power over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as have given themselves to Me. Isn't that what's taught out there? If you'll give yourself to Jesus, you can know you're one of Jesus' sheep. No, it's the Father that did the giving of us to Christ. And it's Christ that gives to us the gift of eternal life. Oh, this is the Gospel of John. There's an outline on our website entitled, John 3.16 Reclaimed. The multi-page document is a refutation of the common explanation for John 3.16 using no other book of the Bible, and it is not the wisest approach. But that's because we're dealing with Arminians, so great wisdom is not necessary. The only book that's appealed to is the Gospel of John and his epistles. No, No Romans 9. I mean, that's just not fair. I mean, when you pull aces like that, you're dealing with an Arminian in John 3.16. That just isn't fair. So I stuck with the Gospel of John and the three epistles of John and all the references are just from John because you don't need to go any farther than the Apostle of Love because he's going to tell you that God gave the elect to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ gives to the elect eternal life and not a single one of them will perish and he will lose none of them. And none of them can come to Jesus Christ except the Father which hath sent him draw them. And that anyone else that God hasn't drawn, he that is of God heareth God's words and he that is... He that is not of God heareth not God's words. It's all, it's sufficient. It is not the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1.13. Oh Lord, we're thankful for the gospel of John. Is it possible, Mr. Arminian? Is it possible that Jesus could have died in vain if no one had believed on him? Do you? Did your God send His Son Jesus 
And the whole thing could have been a total disaster if some sinners hadn't believed on Jesus. Is that sickening? See, we know that if they ever came to an understanding of depravity, no one would have believed on him. Right. Who got any to believe? Mr. Arminian, what kept his death from being in vain, given man's depravity? Is it just probability and statistics, the game of large numbers, that in a big enough crowd somebody's going to say, yep, I'll do it, I'll go forward? Is it probability and statistics? Is it human effort? Was it some zealous missionary that finally got somebody to say yes? But he would have had to say yes first to be a missionary. Is it God's work of grace in their hearts? Is it a Gideon Bible in a hotel nightstand? Is it John 3.16 in a stadium placard? Or is it Tim T-Bowing? What kept Jesus Christ's death from being in vain altogether totally? without a single soul saved. What some energetic pastor did, along with some energetic and gifted organist, along with a sinner, saying, tonight's the night. Since Jesus wept for Lazarus, whose body only died for four days, and Jesus knew he was going to resurrect him, but wept anyway, how much weeping will Jesus do in heaven for sending most men that he loves to an eternity in hell. According to their doctrine. Jesus wept for Lazarus. That's hard for me to comprehend, but that's such an affectionate Savior we have. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. He was only physically dead. It had only been four days. He knew what he was going to do. Why did he weep? Just think about what heaven's going to be like. How will we ever, have, how will we ever be able to have a praise service? Do you know what incense is in heaven? There's the prayer of saints, but once we're there, there's not going to be the prayer of saints, but there's still incense. Do you know what it is? It's the smoke of their torment that ascends up forever. That is the devil and his angels. That's according to the Word of God. Is it popular today? Is this how you build the biggest church on the East Coast? Not quite. How long will his weeping last? Will it be eternal like their suffering? Or until they are out of his sight? You know, out of sight, out of mind? I'm just just curious, Mr. Arminian. Please don't be offended. I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm just trying to make you think. Or will he eventually turn off his omniscience of their anguish and pain, and along with that, his love for them? Mr. Arminian, are men in hell missing any spiritual things? If yes, how did Christ die for them? Since Romans 8.32 says, He shall freely give all things for every one that Jesus died for. He that spared not his own son, because this is the most incredible transaction in the universe. If you ever take a logic class and you argue from the greater to the lesser, here it is right here. This is the greatest example of arguing from the greater to the lesser. He that delivered up his own son, he that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? It is impossible for anyone that Jesus Christ died for not to receive every other spiritual blessing because if God gave the greatest gift possible in the universe, which was his own son, he shall surely add to that every other spiritual blessing. And that is the arguing of the apostle in Romans 8.32. So the next verse is, 
Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And I'm sure you are wondering about the use of the word all in Romans 8.32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. If you want to make that all to mean all, and that's all all means, like that's the depth of an Arminian when they're in the Bible. If you're going to make that all as wide as every single person, every single person is going to be in heaven with all spiritual blessings. But the next verse tells us who the all are. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Because Jesus was delivered up for them, and every spiritual blessing is going to be given to them, there is no charge to lay to God's elect. That's the all of Romans 8.32, defined by Romans 8.33. Look at Romans chapter 8. That 32nd verse is so powerful. It, It is so airtight. It is so great. It is so wonderful. Because if God gave His Son for us, everything else will follow along. It has to. Because for whom He did predestinate, in verse 30, He also called, and whom He called, He justified, and whom He justified, He glorified. For all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. God's purpose is not going to be frustrated by any man, especially you. It's going, to, it's going to be realized with total victory over sin for those in the Lamb's book of life. That 32nd verse is powerful. Verse 33 tells us who it's talking about. Who shall anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Amen. How can any man Christ died for be condemned since he makes intercession for them? Look at the next verse. Who is he that condemneth? Would you condemn someone, anyone that Jesus died for? Arminians end up condemning, i got to ask you a percentage again, Mr. Arminian. What's that percentage again of the total people in the history of the world that will be saved? Out of the total population of conceived, conceived. Remember, they're all against abortion. Conceived. The total number of conceived human beings since creation. What's the percentage that are saved and in heaven? Okay, let's go with your 5%. You're very, you're very liberal. That's not the way you preach on Sundays. You're very liberal. But let's go with your 5%. That means 95% of them end up in hell. And how do they end up in hell? Because Arminians condemn them, though Christ died for them. Who is he that condemneth? Well, they didn't believe. Well, did Jesus die for the sin of unbelief or not? If he, we don't need to go there again. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. The whole issue is Christ's death. The whole issue is verse 32. If Jesus Christ died for them, verse 33, the elect, they shall get every spiritual blessing. There is no hindrance. There is no broken chain of God's divine grace. Who is he that condemneth? It's a rhetorical question. There is no one that has a right to condemn. It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, there is something more important than his death. There is something that is continuing past his death that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who is Jesus making intercession for? Those that He died for. Those that He died for, they can't be condemned on any grounds because Christ died for them. They are God's elect, and they're going to get everything that God had in store for His saved people because He gave the greatest gift of all for them, His Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, you should should read John Owen. And I... Men don't mean anything to me, and you know that, but I thank God for John Owen and the time that he took to sit down and just look at a verse like Romans 8.34 and just look at the intercessory work of Jesus Christ 
and just start asking a bunch of logical questions like who did Jesus Christ intercede for? If Jesus Christ interceded for a person, will they be infallibly saved? And just until you're all until all you need in the Bible is basically Romans 8:34 and you know that only God's elect and everyone that Jesus died for will be in heaven because he also makes intercession for them and he ever liveth to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. You come down to verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, they would tell you that if you don't believe on him right now, you could go out of this place and be struck by a car and you'll separate you from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? None of those things. Verse 37, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Is everyone a conqueror? Every human being that's ever lived, are they a conqueror? Or are most of them conquered by the God of heaven? No, there's only a few that are conquerors. And how are they conquerors? Through him that loved us. Because the love of God was for the elect and Christ's death was for the elect. And he makes intercession for the elect and he will save to the uttermost. And he promised his father before he went to the cross, I will lose none of them. That is the kind of savior I want to believe in. That's the kind of preacher I want to have preached to me. That's the kind of apostle that I want to follow his message. That's the high priest that I want to use. One who says I will lose none of them. The Savior mean what he said, Mr. Arminian. I will lose none of them. So anyone that is lost, did God ever give them to Jesus Christ? Did Jesus Christ ever die for them? Did Jesus Christ ever intercede for them? No, and no, and no. It is plain truth. Right. Oh, there's so much more. Did you know that your body is his purchased possession? Will there be some bodies cast into hell? Did we see that death and hell shall be delivered up and into the lake of fire? Jesus didn't die for all men's bodies. He died for the bodies of his elect. Do those in hell sing redemption? Since the Bible tells us that Jesus entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Who did Jesus Christ obtain eternal redemption for? His elect. Will anyone that Jesus Christ obtained eternal redemption for ever be lost? Never. Is there anyone in hell that he obtained eternal redemption for? Impossible. Thank you, Lord, for your precious word. Did God make any acceptable in the beloved beyond the elect and the predestinated in Ephesians 1, 6? No. It's all one group of men, all one group of women and children that make up the family of God. Whose good pleasure and will determined adoption, acceptance, redemption, and forgiveness in Ephesians chapter 1? Let me say that again. Whose good will and whose pleasure brought about adoption, acceptance, forgiveness, and redemption? It's the good pleasure of His will. Amen. The will of God. Did Jesus die to redeem a peculiar people to himself? Or acquaintances that most would go away and leave him lonely? Or is there a peculiar people, Titus chapter 2, that he may redeem to himself a peculiar people zealous of good works? Peculiarly loved, just like the church in the Old Testament, which you read about in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Did he set his love upon them in Deuteronomy 7? Did he call them special people? 
Did he, did he set them loose in the land of Canaan to annihilate seven nations? There's the election of God as plain as can be. But so few want to accept it. You talk about it, they want to stone you. Why did Paul endure all things for the elect's sakes if Jesus died equally for all men? 2 Timothy 2.10. Mr. Arminian, it says it. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sakes. Why did Paul endure all things for the elect's sakes if Jesus died for the sins of all men? Because he died for the elect, and the elect owe him their lives. It's a shame that there are some Arminians, there are few, are zealously sold out to serve Jesus Christ based on a gospel where Jesus didn't do anything for them. That he didn't do for the 95% that spend an eternity in hell. It is a shame. It is our shame that their love of their false Christ though coming from a regenerate heart in the cases of those that I'm talking about, would drive them to serve Christ so zealously. And we, who have the truth of a God that loves his elect only and sent Christ to die for them only, are not as convicted and as zealous. May the Lord shame us into repentance and applying ourselves more diligently, like the Apostle Paul, who reasoned that if one died for all, all of the elect, then they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him that loved them and gave himself for them. Amen. Lord, help us to that end. We do not want to glory in the intellectual understanding of a doctrine that has been held by our fathers. We want to live zealously for a Christ that died for us and who lives for us in heaven, and we ought to live for him while we're here on earth. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. All the boys and throw the women down on the ground and find out who was a virgin if she wasn't killer on the spot. Go read it. I'm sorry if you don't like that God. I love him. Those abominable Canaanites, you just need to read a little bit about their bestiality and their sodomy and their child sacrifice and you wouldn't feel so sorry for them. You've been warped by the thinking of this sick country. Right. Trust the Bible. Trust God that yeah. He did what was righteous. And if it wasn't for the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord, we all belong there. Right. How can you call that loving them? How did God love the Canaanites in the Old Testament, Mr. Arminian? Are you saying that God loved those in Canaan as much as He loved those that He sent into Canaan to annihilate them? He took away from them their houses. He took away from them their wells, their vineyards, and everything they had to give them to their murderers. They weren't murdering. They were doing the work of God of evangelizing, of getting rid of a bunch of false doctrines, blasphemous doctrines. Do you know what the, you know what the Lord said about that? If I don't send Israel in to do this, the land itself is going to spew them out and vomit them out. Right. That is a holy God that hates sin and sinners. There's so much more that could be said. They would say, I don't understand how God could hate Esau. And we would say, and I've said this so many times because it is so sweet to my ears. And I remember when I first heard it. I do not understand why God Love Jacob. Right. You turn them to Luke chapter 1 and verse 2. A, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. 
you should ask Mr. Arminian, what do the words all the world mean in Luke 1-2? Since it's not just the word world, and it's not just the word all, but it's the words all the world, what does it mean? Out of the earth's population from Adam to today, what percentage were included in those words all the world? Not even 1%. Not even one-tenth of one percent. Because all that was, was the tax-paying Roman world. Japanese didn't pay much that year. (laughs) Caesar Augustus didn't even know where their island was. And so forth and so on. We can go through the Bible and show them. Isn't it amazing? that you can show them a limited world, but when it comes to John 3.16, they have set all their hope upon one verse. And how many have a false hope of the God of the Bible and a false hope of salvation and a false method for evangelism based on one verse instead of reading the whole? Lord, we thank You and we bless You and we praise You. Our, Our understanding of God's love is great by its depth, its effectualness, and its permanence. They call God's love, the love of their God, great. But it's great in width, meaning that it reaches none to save them by itself. It's ineffectual and it's temporary because most will be separated from it. Our understanding of the love of God is great because of its depth. It reaches all the way to sinners and saves them effectually and they shall never be separated from it. Lord, we thank you that your word And your doctrine is reasonable. It is consistent. And we are to bring our strong reasons and our questions to thee and let the word of God answer them. We thank you for saving us. And we thank you that any understanding of your word that we have is by grace as well. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.